Well, so right now I'm reading a book called Pierced by a Sword. Has anyone heard of this book ever before in their entire life? Pierced by a Sword? All right, I see a couple of hands. Not many people have heard about this book. I'd never heard about it before someone gave it to me, and so I decided to try reading it. And it's a fascinating little book involving several different characters, all undergoing conversions and various trials of faith, all kind of at the same time. So there are all these stories that are interwoven, and they overlap with one another in different ways. And what's really interesting is that it all takes place at this moment in kind of an imaginary future, when all of the predictions and all of the warnings of various Marian apparitions are beginning to take place. They're starting to happen. And maybe it's the end of the world. I don't know. I haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, so no spoilers. But one of the characters that we meet along the way is this very prominent leader of the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, and his name is John Lanning. And we first meet Lanning as he is starting to doubt his Mormon faith. He's starting to kind of question it. Is this true? Can I really trust what I've, I've believed my entire life? And then all of a sudden we learn that he has a massive heart attack that leaves him medically dead for 18 whole minutes. And during that experience, God allows his soul to be brought face to face with the full reality of hell. And he actually begins to feel the fire of hell. And he realizes, wow, if I died, if I stayed dead right now, this is where I would go. This place that only moments ago, he didn't even believe existed. But then God intervenes. And John Lanning, this doubting Mormon, miraculously comes back to life. And, and he leaves the hospital immediately, and he heads where? Straight to the nearest Catholic church. <laughs> and he goes there, and he kneels down, and he prays. He goes there to thank God for sparing his life. As he enters the church, Lanning begins to come to grips with the ramifications of what just happened to him. And he realizes, well, now he has no excuse. He has to change his life. He has to do something about what he just experienced. And he has to become Catholic. And yet, if he knows if he did that, if he became Catholic, his entire world would implode as soon as his conversion became public. He knew that he would lose his wife. He would lose all of his relatives. He would lose his friends. He would lose his job. He would lose just about everything. As he contemplates all of those risks and consequences of converting from Mormonism to Catholicism, he looks over at the tabernacle and he sees the sanctuary lamp burning there. And he realizes in his heart, Jesus is really there. And then he asks a really fundamental question. What is the body of the real Jesus in the tabernacle worth? What is Jesus worth? That is pretty much the most important question that any one of us could ever ask. It's a beautiful question, and it is also a fearsome question. What is Jesus worth? What is he worth to me? What is he worth 
to you. To Judas, Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver. Not a whole lot. To countless saints and martyrs up and down the centuries, to so many of our own family members who have gone before us in faith, who have shown us how to live the faith and follow the Lord. For them, Jesus was priceless. He was worth losing everything and anything for. So how about you? Have you ever tried asking the Lord what he is really worth to you? Have you ever sat in front of Jesus in the tabernacle and calculated the full cost of serving him in the way that you know deep down in your soul he is asking you to serve him? I encourage you to to carve out some silence this week and make time for that sort of deep and sobering self-reflection. Because Jesus tells us point blank to do just that in our gospel this weekend, to calculate the cost, to weigh his worth, and see whether or not we are really in this for the long haul. So in our gospel, we hear that great crowds are following Jesus, right? And he spins around on a dime and he looks them in the eye and he says, he says basically, are you sure? Are you sure you want to follow me? Because it's going to cost you everything. And then he says this, which of you wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there is enough for its completion? Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlookers should laugh at him and say, this one began to build, but did not have the resources to finish. Following Jesus to the end, to persevere, is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. On our part, it is full of mistakes and sins and weaknesses. It is not something to be undertaken lightly for fallen creatures like us. It doesn't just cost us one hour on Sunday. Literally, it costs us, or at least it should cost us, every drop of our lives, every single corner of it. Jesus wants all of us or none of us. He wants us to be full saints, not halfway saints. That's what he means when he says stuff as shocking to our ears as this. If anyone comes to me, without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now he's using hyperbolic language here, of course, as a teaching tool. God obviously doesn't want us to hate anyone. He wants us to love everybody, right? Even our worst enemies. And yet, what Jesus is driving at here is very obvious. We cannot prefer anything or anyone over him. Not sports. As entertaining as college football and the NFL is, that's not the end-all, be-all of our life. And it doesn't have the least worth compared to Jesus. Not politics. As obsessed as so many of us are, we're glued to whatever channel we like best. That has no worth. It is dust. 
compared to the worth of Jesus. Not education, as useful and as, as helpful as that is in our walk of life on this earth. It's nothing compared to Jesus' worth. Not popularity or reputation or acceptance in the world. That is vanity. Not romance. Not any relationship. No romantic involvement. However lovey-dovey it is. It's not worth as much as Jesus. If that relationship is severing you from the Lord, if there's something disordered about it, it, it's worth nothing. Worth nothing compared to the Lord. Not our entertainment. So I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. I think this is the first time I've ever referenced Lord of the Rings here at St. Bede. Congratulations. So they, they just made that new TV show, right? The Amazon Rings of Power. Calculating the cost, talk about that. The most expensive TV show in the world. How much money, how many millions of dollars have we spent to complain about a TV show? Wow. It's worth nothing. Entertainment and comfort and vacations and all of the good stuff about this world that we can enjoy, but it's worth nothing compared to Jesus. We cannot even value our own family over him. We can't prefer anything over him. Now that will sound very, very foolish to a lot of people, maybe even some people inside the church. Most people I would say today, even our fellow Christians sometimes, will urge us with some amount of kind of convincing realism that, that we should not be so fanatical and not so dogmatic. They'll tell you to keep your beliefs reasonable and polite, right? To stay open-minded and, and be willing to compromise when it becomes more easy for you. Come on, let's be realistic, they might say. Let's not worry so much about all of those very complicated and sometimes confusing doctrines. After all, you wouldn't want to ruin your life, right? You don't want to be one of those religious weirdos, do you? Be realistic. Keep things in perspective, why don't you? But Christ's words still ring out clear and hard. Hard like a key that can actually open up the locked door of our hearts and the hearts of so many others. Any one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now I know I hear that and I have to admit that I, I start to feel very concerned because I, I'm thinking to myself, that is impossible. That is impossibly demanding. And I know, when I look at my heart, that when I calculate the cost, that I do not have enough. I do not have what it takes. I am too weak to finish strong. Some days, I can't put one stone on top of another, much less build a tower, like Jesus tells us that we are doing. What chance do I have? It's just too much. The cost is too high. Now, if that is you as well, then I just want to tell you right now, this morning, on Resurrection Day, don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Instead, I think the Lord is actually inviting us to see in that weakness our strength. St. Paul said that, right? When we're weak, we are strong. It's paradoxical, and yet... It is the wisdom of God. That is the wisdom of the cross. Jesus tells us in our gospel today as well, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me 
cannot be my disciple. We're supposed to embrace the weakness of the cross. We're supposed to die. One priest once told me, Christians die. It's what they do. But we don't like doing that. We don't. I don't like doing that. Do you? I don't think so. But that's where grace comes in. That's where the softening of the heart that only God's grace can accomplish mercifully comes in and changes the entire game. Because when we experience that weakness, that emptiness, that realization that our humanity is corruptible, as our first reading from the Book of Wisdom said, that we are weak, when we realize how short, how brief our life really is, and how small we are, then we can begin to see the infinite worth of Jesus. And how beautiful that is, that that he would come and lay down his life for us. The infinitely worthy God came and died on a cross for you and for me, for our sins, our real sins, not the pretty ones that we're okay talking about, the filthy and most disgusting ones. That's what he came for, and that's what matters. And so we have to, in spite of our weaknesses and our sins, we have to come over and over and over to the cross. We have to bear it with him. Because he, he's going to help us. He's going to help you. If you are willing today to leave everything, to give up everything for him, he's not going to let you just try to do that on your own. He doesn't expect that from you. He will help you to let go of everything, sacrifice everything and anything. That's what St. Paul is trying to help Philemon do in that beautiful second reading we just heard. He's encouraging him to sacrifice the legal rights that he had at that time to his slave, Onesimus, his servant. Paul is encouraging Philemon to let go, to trust Jesus, and emancipate this slave that Paul has been discipling. And Paul knows it will hurt. He knows that culturally and financially, it's going to be really hard for him to do that. But Jesus is worth it. He alone is worth it. He's the lamb who was slain, and yet he is now standing. He's resurrected. He triumphed over weakness. He triumphed over death. He freed us from slavery to sin. So he's worth everything. The Eucharist that we are about to share is worth everything. So how much is Jesus worth 